This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in the city of Melbourne. Today's big question, how does the resurrection give hope? Now, modern Australian culture is influenced by Christianity. The Christian message dominates the history of Western civilization, and the birth of Christianity can be traced to those first events in that first Easter week. Why is Easter so important? How could it be the week that changed the world? Today, we're speaking with the Reverend Shane Rogerson. Shane's worked for a number of years in churches in coastal New South Wales and inner city Sydney. He's a lead pastor of St. Matt's Anglican Church in Paran. He loves life in Melbourne and can be often seen frequenting the best cafes in Paran and at the city. And Shane loves engaging people with the bigger questions of life. Please welcome Shane Rogerson. Thank you. Shane, welcome. You're a pastor of a church now, but you've not always been a Christian believer. Can you tell us a little bit about your story? What, what convinced you to be a follower of Jesus? Uh, sure, I'd love to. I, I've been a Christian quite some time now, but uh, I did not grow up in a, a context of family where there was uh, religious belief, uh, although that has changed a little bit uh, since I've become a Christian. I think uh, whilst I was in a, a family of indifferent or apathetic um, people when it came to religious belief, uh, in my teens and into my uh, early 20s, I, I kind of had developed as a left-wing Marxist atheist. Right. Um, okay, wow. And uh, How did that manifest itself? Uh, well... <laughs> did you go marching, storming the city? Yes, yeah, so I wanted to burn the Reichstag and, right. and do all those things. <laughs> uh, no, it was interesting because um, middle-class Sydney is where I grew up. But I came from a, a, a well, I'd say it was a working class background. So uh, a single mum who married a guy with a degree, moved to the leafy suburbs uh, and we're, we're kind of in that aspirational middle class existence, good school, uh, safe environment. And this it, is where you became a Marxist? Uh, yeah, well, uh, the Hills District, I, I would never live there, but I have lots of friends and family who live there. It was quite common for people to you know do religious education in school uh, everyone went along uh, but I, I always always really struggled with that but I had some some friends who were believing Christians and not not just culturally so they actually were very serious about their faith they wanted to share their faith with me and there was there was a couple of extremely good-looking girls in particular uh, who were interested in sharing their faith with me, and so I was I was so, very interested. <laughs> right. So a left wing Marxist atheist. What convinced you? Uh, well, I was actually uh, I was more convinced of atheism having engaged with Christians to begin with. Right. So what I did is uh, I, I explored Christianity. I was I was apathetic and indifferent myself. I explored the Christian faith with my friends, and I, I think I came to understand something of the logic. Of, of the Christian message. I understood how, you know, kind of how it fitted together and how it explained the world. But fundamentally, I didn't like the idea of any other person running my life. I did, though, want a coherent worldview. Uh, and therefore, I had to go and find an alternative explanation. If Christianity wasn't going to be the thing, I thought, well, I'm going to find something 
uh, alternate to Christianity, which sort of answered some of the questions I had in life. And I ended up progressively moving towards the left politically uh, and adopting socialism and, and then kind of more idealised forms of communism. But it was not, not the right time in, in world history to be doing that because communists were losing, <laughs> the wall was coming down and I was trying to say, no, hold those bricks up! You know, um, uh, and, but, but what it did, it gave me a compelling worldview in terms of uh, left-wing Marxism. It gave me something to fight for, but at the same time I could sleep with whoever I wanted to sleep with. You felt it was a liberating worldview? Well, it, 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 it both gave you purpose, but it also gave you a sense of freedom at the same time, personally and morally. And so I rejected Christianity, I rejected Christian faith, and over about two and a half years I, I continued to engage with my Christian friends because the thing that I found quite annoying is that there was many ideals within the Christian community and the way they treated each other, which I found incredibly compelling. Uh, I just didn't think that Jesus had to be the centre of that. So what changed? Uh, well, uh, in one sense, the, the, the wheels fell off for me personally and morally. When there's an, within an atheist worldview, I began to think a lot about what really gives meaning uh, to what we're doing. Not only was the wall collapsing, but my own life was, in a sense... Uh, that project of autonomy was not working. Uh, failed relationship, drug and alcohol issues, uh, a sense of nihilism, you know, what is, what, what's, the, what's the meaning, what's the purpose? If, if, if it all ends in death, life then is essentially chaotic, then why do I bother? And uh, that was crystallised for me with a Christian, a Christian friend's father, uh, a man called Douglas Orr, who was a scientist. And... Um, I can remember having a conversation with him where, you know, he kind of asked the, the bigger questions of life and really said, Shane, you know, if what's the point of living if you think it all ends in death? And I said, well, um, you know, there's justice and there's fighting for right and, and these things. And he, he sort of just ripped the carpet out on, on me a little bit and, and helped me to see that if, if things all end in death, whether... I died yesterday or today or tomorrow. He, he just sort of said, what, what is life really worth? What is life really about mm. if it all ends in death? And he, he graphically illustrated that for me. He said, Shane, what if I, you know, if, if, if it all ends in death, and it doesn't really matter what we do now, and there is no right and wrong, uh, there's just survival of the fittest or the fastest or the fattest. And uh, he won on all three counts there. And, and he said, what if I was to go and, and grab my twenty-two out of the cupboard and shoot you? He said, what would that mean? You couldn't say it was right or wrong, it was evil or abhorrent. It's just I'm bigger and faster than you with a trigger. Uh, and as I began to explore that with him, he, he sort of showed me that my life would rot on the carpet uh, and if they left it there long enough, all the water would evaporate from it and uh, what would be left is a pile of chemicals and minerals, which he suggested he could bag up uh, take it to the local garden centre and get five bucks for. And so your, uh, your life is worth five bucks? Is your life worth five bucks was the question. And in the scale of things, that helped me to be much more honest about uh, the moral framework that I was appealing to and the sense of purpose in life. And that really opened up a deeper question about uh, the Christian worldview, the, the historical claims of Jesus, Christian hope, resurrection, etc. That sounds like hope was a big factor in you considering the, the Christian message or the, the, the lack of hope in the alternatives. Uh, absolutely. In fact, it was the, 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 the lack of hope in the alternative which in a sense drove me to the edge of a cliff. 
And, uh, and Douglas all very kindly drove me to the edge of the cliff and said, do you want to go there? And I said, well, just hang on, let's just take two steps back and think about alternatives at that point. But one of the things that was really helpful for me, I had problems with the historicity of the resurrection, which I knew which was absolutely central to the Christian faith. So the Apostle Paul says, if, you know, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we're... Your faith is futile. Your faith is futile. It's, it's crazy. And so I knew that that was central. But I, I heard a person say, even if you don't believe in resurrection, you should want it to be true. Uh, because if, if, if everything ends in death, then, then everything that you, you might think is important, things like uh, justice and care for the poor, and they, they really end the same way. They end in death. And so why bother fighting for those things? Uh, if in the end it all ends in death, you know, why not just eat, drink and marry and for tomorrow we die? Uh, but even then I tried that and I still wasn't happy. Uh, and so that, that, having come to sort of explore the hopelessness of facing death, I read a little bit of Tolstoy and those kind of things, so I thought I was doing it in a more philosophical way. But fundamentally I just couldn't live that way. Um, and I thought, well, I'm prepared to explore things like the historical basis for Christianity if, and see if there is actually something in this guy Jesus rising from death and the hope that that apparently brought. Mm. Okay, well, maybe we should do that. Yeah. To help us do that, I'm going to introduce someone. Um, some say that he's the only one who could possibly win a Pulitzer Prize for a poem about a howitzer. Well, at least he could make them rhyme. All we know is that he's Cam, award-winning poet and performer. Please welcome Cam Simmons. Hi. Great, thanks. So, uh, as you, is so usual... So, do you think you could write, make a poem about a, a well, Pulitzer and a Howitzer? Uh, I'm sure I could. So, I see one of the jobs as a poet is just to give uh, new words and different words and fresh words to these familiar stories. You know, people think, oh, I'm a poet, I must rhyme all the time, but I'm actually not very good at rhyme. Like, I'm, I'm still not very good at rhyme, even though I've been writing for 20 years. What actually I realised I could do and I quite enjoyed doing was hardcore alliteration. So here's my account of the resurrection, the resurrection in R. Wrapped in rags, the Redeemer's remains rested in a rocky room. A round rock restricted all roots to the room. Now the ruling rabbis remembered the Redeemer's remarks regarding resurrection and realised the Redeemer's recruits might rob the Redeemer's remains and wrongly report the Redeemer has risen. Reactively... The ruling rabbis rostered a representative of the regiment to repel robbers. Now the Redeemer's recruits, ravaged by remorse, rested. But once rested, a remnant of these renegades rallied by the rocky room to ritually remedy the rank reek of the Redeemer's remains. And radically, <laughs> the regimental representative remained rigid as a radiantly robed representative of righteousness removed the rock and remarked to the remaining recruits, the Redeemer has risen. Repeat my remarks to the rest of the recruits. Run. Well, the Redeemer's recruits ran. And remarkably, the Redeemer rendezvoused with the rushing recruits, remarking, Recruits, resist reluctance, return 
to the rest of the recruits and regroup at our regular rendezvous. Now the risen Redeemer reassured the reunited recruits of the reality of his return, revealing where his wrists had been ruptured, where the rod had been rammed, and the revelation that his red rivers ran to rescue every rascal and every reverend from the reach of the realm of the wretched. And the Redeemer's recruits responded with, with, with rousing revelry and rightful reverence. Please thank Cam Simmons. <clears throat> Your comments on Cam's reflections. I like the, the little phrase there, uh, the rascals, rascals, the rascals and the rascals oh, reverends yeah, alike. Because yeah. in, in, I think one of the, the challenges in the way that the gospel is often presented, it's, it's seen as good news for rebellious and people who've wrecked their lives. And yet people who are seemingly righteous and upright and together, uh, it can often sound like stop being that kind of rascal and start being a righteous person rather than seeing whether you know, you're, you've kind of squandered your life or whether you're quite together in your life. You both need a relationship with God. So it's, it's a beautiful expression. So we're now we will consider the Redeemer's resurrection. You used to have objections against historical evidence for the resurrection. What, what changed your mind? Well, so I, I was terrible at school. Uh, but I did have one of the best ancient historians that could ever grace the public school education system. So my teacher was absolutely brilliant. I finished in the top five percentile of the state for ancient history. But the presupposition was that miracles can't happen. Right. There was a philosophical assumption in terms of history that's, that even in our class we weren't allowed to refer to history as B.C., or AD, it was before Common Era, BCE, or after Common Era or CE. Because to say AD was to say in the year of our Lord, and that would be to say that resurrection happened. And there was a fundamental presupposition by my teacher that dead people don't rise from the dead. That's uh, a pretty reasonable assumption to make. Uh, it is a reasonable assumption to make if, if we have a presupposition that we live in a closed universe where there's the, not the possibility of the miraculous or uh, a God intervening. But there's two things, I think, that are... Uh, there's strong historical evidence within and without, actually, the, the, the New Testament accounts. Uh, and two in particular. One is an empty tomb and the other one is witnesses. And uh, if you just have an empty tomb, you can come up with all kinds of theories of stolen bodies... If you just have witnesses, you can, you can talk about wish fulfilment, uh, you can talk about um, uh, deception and all kinds of things like that. But you put those two together, you put the empty tomb and witnesses together and I think there are quite compelling reasons. And, and I wish I could have go back and, and catch up, have a coffee... A good Melbourne coffee, not a Sydney <laughs> coffee. Somewhere in Paran, somewhere. Uh, yeah, somewhere in Paran. I would love to sit down with Bruce Denner. I don't know where he is these days or what he's doing, but he is a, a brilliant historian. But I'd say, how do you account for the reality of the Christian church over the last 1,800 years if Jesus is just another dead Messiah? And there was plenty of them. In fact, there's still plenty of people claiming to be Messiah in Jerusalem today. The psych wards this time of year are full. Right. The messiahs, but but how do you account for the Christian church? Part part of the problem is we think, well, 
we're, we're skeptical in inquiring people these days. You know, if if we had been there, we would have done done the hard philosophical inquiry. We would have, we would have done the work. But back in those days, they, they you know they, they believed in all kinds of fairy tales. You know, ancient people they weren't very bright. I, I think one of the problems with that is it's it's historical snobbery. It says that we we somehow are uh, are less gullible, are, are less sceptical, but but actually in the, the worldview of the of, of the first century, people were just as sceptical about resurrection. So, for example, a Greek, uh, to say to a Greek that Jesus had bodily risen from the dead was just a crazy idea to them. Mm. I mean, for a Greek, uh, the body was perishing and lesser, whereas the spiritual was greater. And so to, when you died, you, you, you graduated from the body into the spiritual realm. Therefore, to say that you would die and come back and be given another body, they'd say, why on earth would you want to do that? Mm. You know, we're trying to escape the body. And therefore, to, to present to a Greek, a person within a Greek worldview that Jesus had a bodily resurrection is, is just as implausible as it would be to a, a modern mind today. Uh, and the same for, for the Jewish people. Although they believed in resurrection... They believed that if there was a resurrection, it, was, it happened corporately to all people at the end of time. It didn't happen to individuals. To suggest that an individual had, had risen from death in the middle of history, they'd say, what do you, what do you mean? Hmm. You know, like there's still injustice and there's still sickness and disease and there's poverty and God hasn't resurrected the whole of humanity at the end of time. So... It, this is an implausible suggestion contrary as well. to their prevailing expectations. Yeah, so, so the, the resurrection worldview, the, the resurrection, the prese- presentation of a resurrection in the first century would have met with just as sceptical minds. Uh, hence the importance of actually uh, an empty tomb and witnesses. Mm. The Bible at Luke chapter 24 speaks about the witnesses of the empty tomb. And Luke 24, 1-3 says... On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So Shane, what do you make of the first witnesses of the empty tomb? Well, again, uh, if, if you were going to sort of make up a story, um, then you could have done a far better job than what the gospel writers have done. If you were going to make it up, what would you, what would you do? Well, you'd use someone who was credible. You wouldn't use a woman, would you? Why oh, that sounds terribly rude, isn't it? <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the first century, uh, a woman was a third-class citizen. Uh, you, you could not use a woman's testimony in a court of law. You would be laughed out of court. Celsus, who is, a, I think he's a second-century writer, he just said, look, women, women are no use to us in terms of uh, testimony and witness. And so you think, well, if, if you're going to make up a story about... Uh, a Messiah who's conquered death and risen from the dead and is bringing in this new world order, then you wouldn't use the testimony of women. You wouldn't make up a story that had women as the central witnesses to that story. Mm. And yet, within about 15 to 20 years of uh, Jesus' death, you have these accounts that are running around uh, the Mediterranean. Uh, and with the Pax Romana, um, it was quite possible to, to research this information but you have people saying there are, there are multiple attestations and witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. And they were women. Mm. Well, we've got some of them named here. So in, in the verse 10 there, it was uh, Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other, other women and so on. So- and, and you wouldn't 
make that claim unless it was just known to be true. Even in the testimony where it says here that, uh, but these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. Yeah. So even the initial, they, they didn't believe these women. I'm not going to listen they, to a woman, they'd say. They, um, but the thing is, uh, within 15 years of the Christian message sort of going out and this, this news about Jesus, the conqueror of death, uh, the, the one whom, whom Thomas the doubter would say, my Lord, my God, um, immediately upon this, uh, this news, people start worshipping him as God. And, and it would be very easy to actually go back to the sources and say, is, is this what happened? You couldn't change it. You could have said, well, let's doctor it up. Let's, let's put some men into the account. But it was a, a story which was so well known that people would have known that you were playing with it. Mm-hmm. And so they just told the truth. Yeah. Women saw the bodily resurrected Jesus first. It's actually a very compelling reason why we should believe the gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. So, so again, you have, a, you have an empty tomb, you have these witnesses, and not just, um, not just these women, but uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the fact that there were multiple sightings um, at, at, by different people at different times in different ways. Mm. Some of whom, he says, probably 15 to 20 years after the resurrection event, he says, some of whom may not still be alive, but many of whom uh, you could go and meet with. And talk to and have a coffee yeah. with. Yeah. In Paran, perhaps. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't like Greek coffee. It's a bit <laughs> fine, but yeah. Okay, well, given that there seems to be good reason that the resurrection actually happened, so what? What does it mean? And how does the resurrection offer hope? Um, I, I think this is a, it's, it's, it's a fundamental question. I, I'd answer it in two ways. One, it says that this body uh, and this world is very important to God uh, because the resurrection is about a bodily rising to new life. When Jesus rose bodily from the dead, for example, when uh, Thomas encounters the news, he says, I won't believe it until I see his, the, 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 the holes in his hands and the, the hole in his side. And when Jesus appears uh, to Thomas, he shows him. So here's a, a bodily risen Jesus, one who apparently has conquered sin and death and all that spoils, and yet he has scars. So there's, there's, uh, it, it's, they recognize him as Jesus. He's the Jesus who had walked the earth and suffered and died, but now a, a Jesus who still has those scars and yet uh, is no longer corrupted by death. And I think that actually says that the scars that speak in this life are actually remembered but, are, but are, are given a greater meaning, a greater fulfilment. That, that is, the scars that, 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 that are part of this life, the, the disciples can look at the scarred and uh, Jesus but see that God has actually done something about the scars of this life. They're not just going to be forgotten but they'll be given a fuller meaning in resurrection. Uh, so that all that spoils, all that destroys, all that corrupts has, has been dealt with. And so there's this, there's this hope of an existence, uh, what the Bible calls a, a, a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth, uh, where there is life that is unspoiled and unmarred by uh, all that hinders us and hurts us in this life. And so uh, the bodily resurrection of Jesus 
it's not only hope for the future, but actually also says something about our bodies now. Mm-hmm. Uh, that this life is important. What we do now really counts. Uh, and, and God's not just going to throw it away. He's not just going to discard it and give us some kind of ethereal cloud kind of existence. See, for a, for a Greek thinker at that time, that was a radical thought. Because the Greeks thought, no, you can do whatever you want in the body because it's a tent, it's just sort of passing on. When Jesus rises bodily from the dead, he says, no, this body that you've been given, it's, it's actually it's, it's a fundamental theatre in which life is lived. Um, but one that can be lived in relationship to God, in relationship to the world, in relationship to people around us. Mm. So we've been describing this as the week that changed the world. What is it about this message or this story that has changed the world? Well, the Apostle Paul says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sin. Um, It means that Christians are incredibly deluded people, Mm -hmm. possibly deceptive in what we're doing now. Uh, But not only that, there's an increasing amount of people who say it's not only deceptive and dangerous, but it's actually destructive. Uh, so, so you could change the world for, for the worst. It could actually be changing the world for the worst. That, that, and there'd be those today that it would say Christianity is not a force for good. It's actually a force for evil. Uh, and I, I think Christians probably need to wear that on the chin a little bit and say, are we actually uh, a force for good or a force for evil? Uh, but I think uh, if you go to the, the, the very heart of the Christian faith, despite all the ways in which some people may say the Christian faith has let them down or not come through with the goods in the way they, you know, it's whatever was on the label isn't actually what's in the packet, you know, kind of thing. Um, At the heart of resurrection hope is giving meaning to this life and giving us a trajectory into eternity so that... um, Things like justice and truth and, and goodness and honesty are given a value uh, that will be affirmed for all eternity, that won't just fizzle up and die with us and therefore are pointless, but they'll actually be affirmed as the very things that God has made us for. So he's given us a, a new hope. A, a, absolutely, a, a hope that, that actually grounds, if you like, we can look back to the past and what Christ has done we can look into the future in this new creation that God has promised and that, that Christ is the first fruits of. And that actually gives us a compass bearing for how we live now as people of justice and as people of love and as people of peace and integrity and truth. Because those things matter. They were demonstrated in the life of Jesus. They're fulfilled in this coming new creation. And that, that means how we live now is incredibly filled out and meaningful. Let me leave you with the Bible's answer to the big question, how does the resurrection give hope? From Luke 24, 1-3. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Please thank our guest today, Shane Rogerson. Thank you. Hi everyone, Rob Martin here, host of Bigger Questions. Thanks for listening to another episode of Bigger Questions. We hope you enjoyed the show. 
Now, this has been the third and final episode of our Easter mini-series, where we've been exploring the events and circumstances of that very first Easter week. Now, if you've been stimulated to think more about the week that changed the world, we've produced a special reading guide to accompany these episodes. This reading guide is designed to walk you through the last week of Jesus' life. It contains the events leading up to and including the Easter story from Luke's biography of Jesus' life. It also has reflections from workers around Australia, and it even has pictures. Now, you can get a copy by sending a message on our website, biggerquestions.org, or to our Facebook page. Or you can send me an email at robert.martin at citybibleforum.org. Now, if you're in the city of Melbourne, you can pop into the City Bible Forum offices at level 226 King Street, and you can pick up a hard copy. Got plenty of copies left. It'd be great if you can pick one up. So we'd love to help you ask some big questions about the Easter story. Now, also, if you want to support Bigger Thinking, then please support the show on Patreon. You can support for as little as US $1 a podcast at patreon.com slash biggerquestions. So thanks for listening, and remember to keep asking the bigger questions.